On Saturday, August 8th, 1914, Sir Ernest Shackleton set sail from Plymouth, England with 29 men. Their quest was to become the first to cross Antarctica on foot. In a recent uh, publication, I read that, that Shackleton had recruited these fellow pioneers with an advertisement that read, Men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, a safe return doubtful, honor in success. Men signed on. They would experience everything he promised. Shackleton would along with them work as hard as they did. They nicknamed him simply the boss. He would eventually become their hero. As they got closer to the continent on that ship they had embarked upon, disaster struck the expedition and their ship became trapped in pack ice and was slowly crushed by the freezing water before they could ever land. And so the men became literally stranded on a huge ice flow. That is a flat, free-floating mass of ice. Shackleton kept his crew busy by day as they endured the coming winter. They played ice soccer, had nightly song fests, and sled dog races. It was during this camp that he proved himself a sacrificing, self-sacrificing leader. He willingly exchanged his warmer sleeping bag with one of his crew members. He personally served hot milk to his men every morning in an attempt to, to buoy their, their spirit. In the spring, when they realized that their ice flow was thinning and would break apart, they got into a flimsy uh, raft and made it to a nearby remote island called Elephant Island. Knowing now that their rescue from this desolate island was even more unlikely, Shackleton decided to risk his life with five other men, cross 800 miles of open Antarctic sea, and make it home and bring back a rescue party in their little lifeboat. They made it. Two different times he attempted to return to his men and rescue them, but he had to turn back. On his third attempt, which took 105 days, he kept his word, reached his men, and rescued them. Now, you may be familiar with that part of the story, and this recent publication introduced me to another side of the story, and that was life for these men on that desolate island as they waited. Shackleton had left a man named Frank Wilde in charge, his second in command. Wilde would maintain the routine that had already been established by Shackleton. He assigned daily duties, served meals, held sing-along times, athletic competitions. He also worked hard to keep their morale up in a, in a situation that was seemingly utterly hopeless. And because the camp was in constant danger of literally being buried in the snow that just kept falling, Frank kept his men busy shoveling away drifts of fallen snow. They wondered if they would ever be rescued and make it home. Barely four days' worth of rations remained in the camp, and Shackleton arrived. 
He came in an ice-breaking ship. He personally made several trips through the icy waters between that ship and land to ferry members of his crew to safety aboard the ship. The news media, of course, would turn this into an international legend of perseverance and hope and a promise kept. Shackleton later learned from the men how each morning, every single morning as they rolled up their bedding, Frank Wilde would say to them all these words, and I quote, Be ready, boys. The boss may come today. Now, you know where I'm going with that. You can be half asleep and know where I'm going with that. In fact, you could get up here and do just as good a job with where I'm going to go with that. We have been given a promise, have we not? The boss, our great leader, has made some promises and they will come true. He has promised the church and we await the fulfillment of that promise to be raptured away. He's made promises for devastation to take planet earth by storm and they will come true. And he has promised that he will return and set up his kingdom and that will come true. All of it. And when he comes, his second coming to set up his kingdom, we, his bride, will be with him coming with him in the clouds in splendor and the majesty of this scene is breathtaking. He is coming in person. He's coming to rule and reign. Before his crucifixion, the disciples asked Jesus about that return. There were questions on their minds about what would be the signs to his coming. This isn't a question about the rapture, but about the prophecies of his Return to earth to set up his kingdom. The first time he came, all the prophecies were fulfilled that he would be born of a virgin, suffer rejection, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. Now they ask him, Lord, what are, gonna, well, what are the signs going to be for you to return and set up your kingdom? And Christ answered them, describing these cosmic disturbances that we've studied. Describing the natural disasters that have already pummeled earth. And then the Lord said to his disciples in Matthew 24, these words, After the days of tribulation, the Son of Man will appear in the sky. Later on in chapter 25, our Lord says that he will return in all his glory and will sit upon his glorious throne. Matthew 25, 31. The king is coming. He will keep his word He will fulfill his promise. He will set the record straight. As he returns with the church and the hosts of heaven, his bride, to reign with him. In fact, next we'll study together a message I've already entitled, Here Comes the Bride. For the church, the bride of Christ, will be described in all her wedding day beauty in the next paragraph. Now, Revelation 19, if you're not there yet, opens with this stunning epic in human history when Jesus Christ is about to come back with his bride to set up the glorious kingdom and his throne on earth, a kingdom as the Gettys have penned wonderfully with emerald courts and sapphire skies. Is it any wonder, as we'll discover, that as Christ returns, everyone and everything related 
is, is about to burst into song. The atmosphere is absolutely electrifying. We're about to study the capstone of redemptive history. And we're given the lyrics of this grand song, the middle part of verse 1. It begins with the word hallelujah. Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Now what we have here in this amazing scene is all the redeemed and all the hosts of heaven, they're going to be singing at the top of their lungs. This word begins it all. Hallelujah. Now let me tell you something surprising, perhaps. This is the first time in the entire New Testament that the word hallelujah appears. It doesn't appear in any other New Testament book. It doesn't appear in the book of Revelation up to or prior to this scene here. Why? Well, probably because, I believe after studying this, its most common use in the Old Testament, where it appears about 22 times, most often refers to the rescue of Israel and the destruction, the judgment of the wicked. And so here you have in Revelation 19 that moment where where Israel is restored and Christ the judge comes back to vindicate his name. The word hallelujah is a wonderful Hebrew word. It's transliterated into the Greek language. In fact, it's transliterated into every language, not just English. So wherever you go, everybody says it the same way. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Maybe you've been outside the country, as I have been, and you go to visit believers on different continents, as I have done, and after the customary shaking and and hands and, and bowing, I don't know a word of their language, they don't know a word of my language, I'll say, Hallelujah. And they'll brighten up. He knows my language. And they'll say, Hallelujah. That's all we know, but we just say it several times and have wonderful fellowship. Hallelujah. 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 Closest I get to being a charismatic is when I travel overseas. Hallelujah. (laughs) Well, it's interesting to me, no matter where you travel, every Christian seems to know the opening lyric of praise to the coming king. Hallelujah. This word is actually a compound word, a verb and a noun squeezed together. The verb, hallelujah, is the imperative form of the verb, which simply means to praise. And the ya, the ending which gives us hallelujah, is simply a shortened form of Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. So hallelujah simply means praise the Lord. I read it earlier in one of the Hallel Psalms, the Hallelujah Psalms, which is where the word appears frequently. Now, we can certainly use this word now as a New Testament believer or church. We don't need to wait for the kingdom. In fact, we ought to warm up every once in a while because we have already been rescued, haven't we? And God resides within us. It's a word we ought to get used to as we speak and sing our praise to God. Now here in in Revelation chapter 19, the word appears four times. We'll let that form for us our outline. In fact, first, why don't you just go through and circle the word if you have a pen or pencil handy. I think it's a good idea to mark your Bible well. It appears first in verse 1 there halfway through, hallelujah. 
It appears next in verse 3 where we read, and the second time they said, hallelujah. In verse 4, we hear it again, only this time they add the word to hallelujah, amen. Amen. That's conclusive proof that some Baptists will make it to heaven. We're not told how many. might be discouraging. No wonder numerous authors I've read consider chapter 19 to be heaven's hallelujah chorus. Hallelujah. 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 Well, let's go through these four appearances. We'll make these stand as our four points, four stanzas. And I want you to notice why the hosts of heaven are singing effectively the hallelujah chorus. First, they are singing hallelujah for what God offers. Look again at verse 1. Hallelujah. Why? Because salvation and glory and power belong to our God. These are God's alone. They're qualities of his, of his character that he alone is able to gift to those who believe. The author of the New Testament book, the Apostle Peter says, you have no idea what kind of glory you're going to experience. Another word appears, for as many as received him, that is Jesus Christ in John 1, 12, to them he gave the power to become children of God. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9, that God has not destined us for wrath, but rather for the obtaining of salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation through him. So power and glory and salvation belong to God alone. They are God's possessions that he gifts to those who believe. So when Bono steps out on the stage during his concerts as I watched a little bit online as I read that he did this just to make sure, and he puts up on the jumbo screen the word coexist. The letter C representing the Islamic crescent. The letter X representing the Star of David. The letter T representing the Christian cross. And then he leads the crowd in what has become the mantra for the apostate church we in our generation are beginning to call the emergent church. And here's the quote, everything you know is wrong. What's he referring to? Religion. But even more than that, he's referring to biblical propositional truth, which is the hang-up. Bono then leads the crowd in chanting, Jesus, Jew, Muhammad, all true. Jesus, Jew, Muhammad, all true. What's he saying? He's saying Christianity... Judaism and Islam are all equally true. But think about it. Christianity believes that Jesus Christ is the Messiah who came, was crucified, buried, rose again, ascended, and is coming back. Islam doesn't believe that Jesus is God incarnate. He is not the Messiah, and he didn't even die on the cross. And Judaism believes the Messiah hasn't even yet come. How can they all be equally true? It'd be like taking I-95 South, believing that you can go to Florida and New York and Alaska. Isn't that great? Try it. (laughs) Listen to the statesman-like spin of the same message, only this time from Tony Blair, former prime minister of Great Britain. 
who, by the way, is now being promoted by the Willow Creek Association in their simulcast leadership conferences for evangelical leaders, which happens to be an utter mystery to me as to why hundreds of churches in America primarily, in fact, thousands of churches, would desire unbelievers, as they've invited Bono and Blair, on how they could tell the church how to act and Christian leaders to lead. Utter mystery to me. Tony Blair happens to be one of the key leaders in this global push for abandoning doctrinal convictions and somehow coming together in one unified, happy family. On his board is a Zen Buddhist, a Hindu, an Anglican, a Protestant pastor whose name I won't mention for the sake of embarrassment, and a Jewish rabbi. His attempt at coexisting. You can go online. I found this as easily as you could. And you can listen carefully and wade through statements he makes like this one. And as I attempt to to teach you to think critically, to not believe something just because you hear it, including what you hear me say, take me to the scriptures to see if those things are so. Think critically, especially in this generation. And I want you to listen to what Blair said as I'll quote uh, him. Listen past the Christian speak. And get the core of his message. Here's what he says. God's spirit moves through us and the world at a pace that can never be constricted by any one religion. Be very wary of people who think theirs is the only way. Now, who do you think he might be talking about? He's referring to Christians who muddle it all up by believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ alone. We're the problem. Watch out for us. Peter wrote to the believing church, listen, if you are reviled, you could translate that, if you are scorned, if you are maligned, for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. But this is the message we have learned of Babylon. And the volume of Babylonian voices are growing ever louder. Pushing toward what they believe will be the panacea of hope and help. One global order. One political power. One global village. One global economy. One religious Unity. As we watch the message grow together as an assembly, as we've studied this book and take shape until it came to power in the tribulation under the reign of Antichrist, we watched it ultimately wage open war on God and it was defeated, the city of man. And now here in Revelation 19, as Christ is set to return, the multitude of heaven is chanting a different tune. And did you notice no one is singing salvation is from whatever God you'd like to believe in. It is hallelujah. Praise Yahweh, our covenant-keeping God. Well, that's the first hallelujah. Hallelujah for what God offers. The second hallelujah is for what God settles. Look at verse 3. And a second time they said, Hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. Who is she referred to here? Her smoke rises up forever 
endeavor. She, as we have come to know, is Babylon, the city of man, the world system, and the world empire city. This is who she is. Babylon is corrupting with its arrogant defiance, her man glorifying, nature exalting, animal worshiping, Christian murdering, promiscuous philandering, false teaching, ego promoting, money loving, sexually deviant, pseudo-spiritual, Christ denying, demonically bound, spiritually blind world system. And that's just the beginning of the profile of the man's city, of man's pride, Babylon. Now, as we enter this paragraph and work our way through it, we can imagine as believers that all the hosts of heaven and all the redeemed would say and sing hallelujah as it relates to God's salvation and glory and power, and we can immediately get into that. But can you imagine the hosts of heaven here And the world of Christians and the resurrected saints are glorifying God for that. And also now they are glorifying him for his eternal, unrelenting, terrifying judgment. It's exactly what's happening here. We, the redeemed, are as thrilled over the justice of God as we are the grace of God. When God here measures out eternal punishment to the followers of the beast, to the great prostitute, Babylon, with its system, its false religion, who seduces the hearts of of unbelieving mankind, as God is measuring out his divine justice and eternal punishment to the unredeemed, unrepentant humanity, along with all the fallen angels, listen, the believer will be singing hallelujah. We don't usually attach the word hallelujah to the destruction of the unbelieving world, do we? This is the fulfillment of Moses' words in Deuteronomy 32, 43, where he writes, Rejoice, O nations. Rejoice with his people. Why? For he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance on all his adversaries. David wrote in Psalm 96, we know this psalm, the first part, well. And we forget its context. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all it contains. Let the field exult and all that is in it. In it, Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy before the Lord. There's not a period there. Why? For he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness. Psalm 96, 11 to 13. Now, some might think that the believer and the angelic hosts of heaven is, you know, are somewhat insensitive and uncaring to rejoice in the downfall and judgment of unbelieving humanity. But that ignores the reality here and the context from which we hear them praising God. It ignores the fact that this city and her inhabitants and the world of followers of Antichrist will have had the greatest opportunities to repent of any generation that ever lived. In chapter 6 and again in chapter 9, we're told that the human race at large refuses to repent even though they acknowledge the great plagues 
and the natural disasters are coming from the hand of whom? God. They know it's from God, and the text repeats over and over, yet they would not repent. Even though they have heard the most powerful preaching of the gospel in human history through the ministry of the 144,000 Jewish evangelists, also recorded in chapter 6, they refuse to repent. The world at large, many will. The world will also hear, this generation will will hear and watch the amazing, supernatural, death-defying testimony of the two witnesses. Anybody attacks their testimony, fire comes out of their mouths and destroys them. And people are still going, ah, we don't think we're going to believe still. Add to that the fact that they will see and hear that angel that will go around the globe to every tongue, tribe, and nation delivering the gospel. There will be many among every tribe, tongue, and nation who, who will believe, but the world at large says, wow, we're still not going to believe. And they refuse to repent. And on top of that, this generation will hear and watch Those who've come to believe refuse the mark of the Antichrist, choose martyrdom over the empire of man, and walk with joy to the guillotine for the glory of God. Yet, despite all of all of that, the world at large will remain unrepentant to the very end, hardened in their defiant hatred of God. And the hosts of heaven and all the, the believers will be shouting hallelujah. Why? Because at the root of all of this is that God has come to set the record straight. And the believer who longs to see the world bathed in the glory of God, the unhindered praise to his majesty, we are all going to rejoice when Christ sits as a righteous judge over all the earth. And there's something that resonates with us, even as we go through it as as genuine believers. We long for the day when the name of Jesus is no longer taken through the mud, don't we? We long for the day when his character is vindicated, when his word is honored, when he is glorified. So we, with them, will see the day come and say hallelujah. Perhaps you heard about the gallery of modern art. It's been in the news here in the States for some time in Glasgow, Scotland, where an open Bible was placed in a display case that was opened. Next to it were some pens And a note. The note said this, and I quote, If you feel you have been excluded from the Bible, write your way back into it. You can imagine. Within days, so many people had defaced the Bible, written lewd messages, profaned God. The gallery, which had no idea this would happen for some reason, pulled the display off. Messages like one person who wrote of the scriptures, wrote it on the page of of the Bible. This is all sexist sewage. 
Another who wrote across the page of a Bible, I am bisexual and proud. I want no God who disagrees with this. Listen, when the scales of holiness and justice are taken up by the hand of Christ and righteousness prevails and the word of God is vindicated and his his wonderful, pure, holy character is exalted, we will be singing hallelujah. Hallelujah for what God has offered. Hallelujah for what God has settled as he judges the earth. There's a third hallelujah. It's a hallelujah for what God fulfills. Look back at verse, or look ahead to verse 4. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sits on the throne saying, Amen, hallelujah. That's it. No commentary. Just the church gets involved now. 24 elders representing the church of Christ are wearing their white robes promised to the church, golden crowns promised to the church, seated on thrones promised the church, and yet they get off those thrones and they, they fall before God and they, and they worship him and they add the word amen. Amen! Hallelujah. What a wonderful, wonderful lyric. Amen, by the way, is a word of affirmation. You could render it, so it is. Uh, it's true. The more well-known expression would be, so be it. I had a woman come up to me and uh, she said, my grandson, little grand boy was over and, and spending the night and I tucked him into bed and well, we prayed first and while we were there getting ready to pray, he asked me, hey, Grandma, what does amen mean? And she said, it means so be it. It's true. So he said, well, I, I want to pray. And he prayed, went through his whole routine, and then he got to the end, and he said, in Jesus' name, so be it. <laughs> so be it. Did you notice the angels are thrilled to join in here? The 24 elders and the four living creatures, these cherubim we've studied representing the angelic hosts, they're all into it now. <laughs> they're all involved. Why? Why would angels join here? Well, as I thought about it and studied this text, it, it occurred to me that they must be extremely thrilled, at this point especially, to have resisted Satan's coup attempt, joining him in this attempt to dethrone God. We know from the scriptures that Satan planned this coup attempt. Isaiah tells us, he said, I'm going to ascend. I will have the throne of God. Anybody with me? And one third of the angelic hosts said, we're with you, Lucifer. And that, of course, led to the fall. And at that moment, those unholy angels, we call them demons today, were confirmed in their unholiness, and those who chose to stay with God were confirmed in their holy estate. And it just occurred to me, you know, I can imagine Satan coming to high-ranking angels like Michael, like Gabriel, perhaps suggesting to them, hey, join with me. We will depose the triune God, and, and I will make you one of my chief ambassadors, lieutenants in my kingdom. Because we know the angelic host had a choice, Gabriel would have said, no thank you. 
not for me. Why? Because of what he believed. He believed the word of God. And he would be the ambassador of God uniquely. Gabriel, you know, would later announce to Daniel. He would come to him and tell him, Daniel, the kingdom of God is is going to overthrow the puppet kingdoms of Satan. And now what's happening here in chapter 19? It's coming true. The kingdom of Christ is coming. His word is being fulfilled. I, I can't help but imagine that Gabriel's thinking, man, I'm glad I stayed with him. I'm glad I stayed on his side. It's coming true. Hallelujah for what God offers. Hallelujah for what God settles. Hallelujah for what, what God fulfills. One more. There's one final hallelujah for what God occupies. Verse 5 says, And a voice came from the throne. A voice from the direction, the grammar tells us, of the throne. Probably one of the cherubim or maybe one of the elders. And here's the announcement now to all the redeemed. Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. God is occupying his throne. He is victorious. His throne and his reign are now without any obstruction, competition, or rebellion. He is seen for who he is, the sovereign king of the universe. He's occupying the throne that had been long prophesied ago now, nearly 2,000 years ago. In fact, it was Gabriel himself who came. He remembered to that virgin teenage girl, Mary, and announced that she would conceive by the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit and would bear a baby boy. And that baby boy was actually God the Son, fully man, fully God, and he would be the fulfillment of all messianic prophecy. And Gabriel told her, This interesting text is given to us in Luke 2 that he will have the throne of David. He will have the throne of David, listen, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. This here in Revelation 19 is the beginning of that fulfillment. He's going to occupy the throne of David and his kingdom will have no end. And the sound of all those singing sounds like mighty rushing water. You ever been to Niagara Falls? Quite a sound, isn't it? Six million cubic feet of water rushing over the edge, cascading down every 60 seconds. It thunders. It reverberates right here. Better than an amusement park. They, they can't turn it off at night. It's great to go and see yourself. This is the sound of the praise of the redeemed. But I want you to know that it is wonderful, not just with the mighty sound of millions upon millions. It is a wonderful sound if it's just one voice. Your voice. Saying. In the secret place of your heart, God's word is true.
Amen. Praise the Lord. He is worthy of praise. I can praise him for salvation, glory, and power. For you today to say by faith, Amen. It's true. Might be a great statement of faith for you. Because maybe everything in your world doesn't seem to play out the truth that what he said is true. And maybe to say, praise the Lord, the circumstances in your life don't seem to lead someone to say, praise Yahweh. And so for you to say that brings from the recesses of your heart and soul deep, resonating faith in God. The word of God would commend you and encourage you today. I stood in the hospital room a few months ago. One of our dear friends and co-workers had taken a turn for the worse. He'd been in the hospital quite some time. He had a chronic condition that was now deemed fatal. He'd been on life support for several days. His body was running down. I came over to the hospital room and, and learned from his wife, Sandra, that Dennis had been given 12 hours basically by the medical staff. And then they were going to unplug all the paraphernalia. They had done everything they could. I've been in a number of hospital rooms and I've seen death and I knew that all I could do was go over to him and say goodbye. He'd been unconscious for some time, put my hand on his head and told him I loved him. I prayed, thank God for him. And then his wife and I, with tears in both our eyes, talked about the funeral. She asked me if I would preach it, and I said, I will. We talked for some time and then I left with a heavy heart, drove home and told Marcia the updated news. But during the night, something happened. No one knows for sure what, but he began to improve. I, and I didn't, I didn't put my hand on him and pray be healed. I, you know, I didn't do that. I can't claim that. And Benny Hinn stands alone in the ability to do that. I, <laughs> I, I said Goodbye. Farewell. But his vital signs all improved. Within hours, he was off life support. A few days later, he's, he's coming over here. I'm not planning his funeral. He's going to outlive me. I know it. No doubt about it. His wife told me this. She said as he was coming, literally back to life, as it were, he was able to breathe on his own. He took out the breathing tube, and the nurses heard him singing, even though he was unconscious and he was singing the hallelujah chorus hallelujah 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 isn't that amazing I've never heard Dennis sing he's not in the choir there's probably a good reason for that <laughs> but imagine just one of God's trusting 
children slipping in and out of consciousness with that on his mind. And that word, which is uniquely reserved for God's people. Hallelujah. Amen. Father, thank you for the description of this grand scene, just enough to whet our appetite, to get us ready to prepare, even now, in our lives, as weak, stumbling, faltering children of yours ask you for power for the day, grace for the day, and say within our hearts, you are worthy of praise. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.